fun run, you know, something that you do for fun and for exercise, and so it doesn't really matter if you get tired and you, you know, pull out halfway through. Others would take it very seriously as a long and hard race, and you need to be physically fit to compete, especially if you want to finish, let alone win. It's not a sprint. It's a bit like running a marathon, isn't it? Well, our passage at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12 this morning compares, if you like, living the Christian life like being a race, a long and enduring, thing, uh, enduring marathon type of race. You know, it's not a relay. It's not running stages. It's a long, enduring race. You know, you just don't run for a little while and then pass the baton on to somebody else. No, it's your race. Your race. No heats. It's there. This race is a race of a lifetime, a race that starts when you accept Jesus Christ as your Saviour and Lord and continues to run for the entire, well, your entire life on this earth until... God retires you. Well, with that in mind, let us pray as we come and take a closer look at this small but punchy passage this morning, shall we? Let us pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for your word again. Again, we ask for your spirit's wisdom and guidance as we read it, as we think about it, but again as we seek to put it into practice in our lives. And so, Father, bless us this morning, we pray, for your glory and for Christ's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've got chapter 12 open, look at verse 1 with me, if you will. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And most of you, or some of you, will already know that the word used for race there is the Greek word agono, from which we get our English word agony. Agony. This is a serious and costly and long-distance race. You have to run with perseverance. And this endurance is, well, it's a key amongst these first three verses. Have you ever wondered why the 100 metres is considered to be the ants' pants of the field and track events at the Olympics? I mean, yes, you do have to train hard for it. And yes, the competition is intense, but let's face it, the whole race is over in, what, just 10 seconds. Why isn't... The the, the 10,000 metres, or the 15,000 metres, or the the marathon considered to be the prestigious event of the Olympics. In comparison to those, a 100 metre dash can seem rather puny, yeah? Well, the Christian faith is not a sprint. It's not a sprint, it's a race of endurance. And don't be fooled. This race is not going to be easy. No way. We will need to persevere. We will need to have patience and we will need to 
remain steadfast in our faith. And the imperative or command that's given to us here in verse 1 is to run the race, to run it. John MacArthur comments here that the problem with churches today is that a lot of people seem to be simply jogging or walking slowly. He says, but the biblical standard for holy living is not a morning constitutional. It's a race. A race that is very different from any athletic race that you might know of. Why? Because we are not competing against each other. We are not trying to outdo each other in righteousness or recognition or even our accomplishments. No, the Christian life is a race of faith, if you like. Did you notice at the end of verse 1 that this race is marked out for us? We don't get to choose the course. It is God that does that. And the course he marks out for me isn't necessarily the same as the one that he will mark out for you. My race might have you know, deep valleys and steep hills. Your race might be flat and sunny. Mine may be long and lonely and yours may be short and sweet. And we don't know what the specific challenges and adventures will be in life for us. We don't know the struggles that will come our way either. But we do know that they will test our faith. They will test our faith. They will challenge our trust in the promises of God. We don't get to decide when we stop running the race either. That too is decided for us by someone else. This hit home for me, I think, over the last few weeks. About three weeks ago, a good lifelong friend of mine, uh, uh, Lindsay Wybrow, finished his race. About two weeks ago, my brother-in-law, John, he found out and God announced to him that his race was coming to an end as he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. We don't get to choose when we finish the race. God is sovereign. And it is God who numbers our days. Why is running this race so difficult? Well, because there are things that will hinder us and things that will entangle us. Look at the middle of verse 1. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Common sense will tell us that there are some things that you just wouldn't think of doing in a race, yeah? I mean, like you wouldn't run a marathon in your floppy pyjamas or wearing army boots or even while texting to someone on your phone, would you? You just wouldn't do that. You would get rid of anything that would hinder you physically in your race. And the same is true spiritually as well. Get rid of anything that will hinder your ability to run. Why? Because it's going to zap your energy and move your focus away from Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly what sorts of things that the writer had in mind as he wrote this letter, but because he is primarily writing to Jewish Christians, he may well have been thinking about the ways of the Old Covenant 
You know, he's been speaking about it in the first ten chapters. He's been speaking about the old covenant with its mosaic laws and its sacrificial system and all that. He says, don't tie yourselves to these things of the past. Throw off anything that will hamper your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, there are some things that are obviously not good for us. Yeah? So make sure they're not a part of your life. But there are also things that might seem perfectly innocent and harmless in themselves. Something like playing golf. Playing golf, that's nothing wrong with playing golf, is there? Nothing wrong in itself. Unless it means that you play golf on Sunday mornings instead of enjoying the fellowship of your brothers and sisters in Christ in church. Then there's a good chance that it has become something that is dampening your enthusiasm for the things of God. It could be something like a hobby or a PlayStation or some other great interest that you have, maybe a car or a career. It might even be a relationship that means more to you than the things of God. Things in themselves might seem harmless and, you know, just a normal part of life. But they may, in fact, be a spiritual hindrance that needs to go. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Now, we all know how debilitating sin can be, don't we? Sin will always bring you down. And I'm not sure what sins in particular may be affecting you. I'm sure there are many sins that we could mention at this point in time. But in reality, there are sins that don't tempt you in any way at all in life. I mean, like, you may not have been attempted to or tempted to uh, murder someone. But then there are sins that are, what's the word, they seem to haunt you. There might be a particular sin or two or three that just won't leave you alone, that just keeps coming back again and again and again. And they are difficult to get rid of. They're difficult to let go of those things. You know what they are for your life. Lust is often said to be the Achilles heel of many a man, but not all. What sin is it that so easily entangles you or me? Is it covetousness, envy, gossip, criticism, laziness, hatred, lust, unthankfulness, pride? Whatever sin dogs your Christian life has to go. It's got to go, otherwise it could prevent you from finishing the race. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. 
Is that true for you? Is that how you feel? I wonder how reluctant we are to ask ourselves the question, what might be hindering me in my Christian life at the moment? What are you and I willing to give up to enhance our relationship with Christ? Now, a number of Christian scholars believe that the particular sin that the writer is probably addressing here in Hebrews is that of unbelief. Unbelief will definitely entangle you, won't it? I mean, it is impossible to run with faith if you don't believe in God in the first place. Other scholars would argue that the writer is not talking about being entangled by our own sin, but by the sin of others. And they point to verse 3 as their basis for that. For we are to follow Jesus who endured such opposition or hostility or hindrance from sinful men, or more literally by sinners against himself. And so they would argue that it is the sin of others that threatens to entangle us, just as it threatened to entangle Jesus. What the heck? What the heck? I mean, in the end, all sin will entangle us, won't it? And therefore it's got to go. It's got to go. Hey, listen, don't play with sin. Don't entertain it in your life. And if you do happen to fall into sin, don't ignore it. Deal with it. Deal with it. Confess it. Confess it being confident of God's forgiveness. And finally in verse 1, look at me back to the beginning of the verse. It says there that we are to consider this cloud that surrounds us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Now the picture that probably first brings into our minds as we read this is say that of you know, Optus Stadium, filled with spectators, this great cloud of witnesses, you know, that are cheering us on. You know, they're, they're there and they're watching us. They say, oh, look at Katie. Go for it. Go for it. Yes, you can do it. Hang in there. But I'm not sure that's the intention of the writer here. The word witness signifies much more than just simply a mere spectator. This crowd are the believers described in chapter 11. And they, and, and I suppose all the other Christians that have lived since then, you know, like Luther and Calvin and Wilberforce and Wesley, and more recently John Stott and uh, Billy Graham, they are this great cloud of witnesses who by faith have already finished the race. And they have found God to be totally faithful and trustworthy. It doesn't matter that they're dead because they still speak to us, to us who are currently running the race. And they testify to the enduring value of faith. As you read chapter 11, it is by faith so-and-so did this. 
The point of calling all these saints from chapter 11 witnesses is not so much to say that they are watching us, but to say that they are near enough for us to watch them, to see what they have done. You see, they're not so much a witnesses, a witnesses of our race, but witnesses of how important one's faith is to finishing the race. We look into the crowd and we realise that every one of them finished the race and so we are reminded that it can be done. It can be done. They stand as examples of the enduring faith and perseverance that they had under all sorts of circumstances of life and of God's sustaining power and strength throughout that. We know that the Christian life will be very demanding. It's a race marked out for us requiring perseverance and costly self-sacrifice. But we also know that we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses to the truth to the reality of the faithfulness of God. And brothers and sisters, that spurs us on. The very first word of verse 1, therefore, the Greek word toigarun, which I think is used uh, only twice in the New Testament, here and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where there it is often translated as consequently. Yet, consequently, spurred on by this great cloud of witnesses, we too can run with faith and perseverance. Verses 2 and 3 continue by telling us the secret of perseverance. Yeah? It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before us... Oh, sorry, <laughs> joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And this is exactly what the previous chapter, chapter 11, has been telling us about faith, isn't it? Faith is being certain of what we do not see. And to exercise Christian faith is to fix our eyes on Jesus, who we are told here is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The Greek word aphorontes here implies to look away from other things in order to see one thing. It is to concentrate. One scholar uses the illustration here of, you know, like uh, faith being like looking at a clock. If there was a clock on the back wall of the church and I wanted to know the time, I'd look at the clock, wouldn't I? But I wouldn't be worried about the distance between me and the clock. I wouldn't be worried about the amount of light in the building. I wouldn't be worried about my eyesight with my, well, maybe if I wore glasses I might be, but... You see, the idea is I want to know the time. I look at the clock and I concentrate on the clock. And so it is if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you must look 
to Jesus. And that comes by hearing about him and by reading about him, yeah. And there is something about the sight of Jesus that changes everything. If you're not a Christian this morning, then fix your eyes on Jesus. You see, in reality, that's all we as Christians have to offer you, is Jesus. Not a, a glorious, easy, comfortable life, you know, where faith will bring you many blessings and make your life easy. No, verse 1 has clearly knocked the head of that idea, and not knocked that on the head. The Christian life is an agonising race of endurance, it says. But we can point you to Jesus. And there is no one or no thing better than him in all the world, whether it be in the past or in the present or in the future. Look at Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. When I was in high school, I'm sure they used to punish me by making me do PE classes in the playground. You ever done that, PE classes? And the playground wasn't nice grass, it was bitumen. Really fun. And I remember that for a little while there, we had to practice and practice and practice how to jump over hurdles because the athletics carnival was coming and they wanted people to enter the 100 metre hurdles. And I've got to tell you, totally honestly, I was useless at it. Absolutely useless. I mean... I ran through and fell over more hurdles than I ever jumped over. There's even one stage I remember I almost hurt myself badly because somebody had put the hurdle around the wrong way. And so when you hit it, it didn't fall. <laughs> oh, what fun. But the PE teacher kept on telling me what he thought was the secret to doing it easily. He said the secret is to keep your eyes fixed on the finish line. Look to where you're running rather than at the hurdle that is right smack in front of you at the moment. And if you do that, he said, you usually will fly over the hurdle with ease. Well, our Christian life is like that. Jesus is saying, turn your eyes to me. Look at me. Consider me. For those who are finding faith so difficult, here then is the solution. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus and you will see someone who changes everything. A sight that draws us out of time and into eternity. Notice how the author doesn't really waste much time in this short passage telling us about how awful the hindrances of the sins are, does he? Rather, he concentrates here more on telling us about our saviour, Jesus. Yeah, the author and perfecter of our faith, he says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, consider him who endured such opposition for sinful men. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's why we are to consider him. We are to look at Jesus because of what 
he did. What he did. One scholar says if you take verse 3 in isolation, then it might sound a little bit like, you know, why don't you eat your Brussels sprouts like your sister does? You know that old parent saying, you know, why can't you be like your brother or your sister? But then is never very much help in life, is it? I mean, that sort of saying has the effect of putting us down rather than encouraging us and lifting us up. And so putting the example of Jesus before me and telling me that I've got to suffer like he suffered is not what I think the writer is doing here. Oh, Jesus said we will suffer because he suffered. But I don't think that's what the author is trying to do. Here we are being presented with yet another witness, one who is even more helpful, one who the first ten chapters of Hebrews has been telling us is better than the angels, better than the prophets, better than Moses. He is better than Melchizedek. He's a better high priest, a better covenant, a better temple and a better sacrifice. And Jesus is not standing amongst this great cloud of witnesses. He is the one who is waiting for you and for me at the finish line. We are to focus on Jesus because he is the author and the perfecter of our faith, verse 2. And that means more than just simply being the one who you know, went before us and the one in whom faith was perfectly expressed. Jesus is much more than just an example of faith. He is the object of our faith. That word perfect, I mean, in this whole letter to Hebrews, every time the word perfect is mentioned, it usually refers to the completed work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who originates faith and the one who completes faith. So when I consider him, as verse 3 is telling me to do, I see him, or rather I see in him, where my faith began when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Saviour and Lord. And I also see in him my passage into glory, into God's kingdom, where at my death or when Jesus returns to this earth, whichever happens first, faith will give way to sight and I will walk into the presence of the eternal God forever. It's all contained in Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, the originator and the completer of our faith. As the Apostle Paul reminds us, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. We're not being told to look at Jesus in order to imitate him. We are being told to look at Jesus and to rest in him and to rejoice in him because the secret of enduring, of not growing weary and losing heart is not actually the example of Jesus. It is the finished work of Jesus Christ. You see, when you look at Jesus, you're looking at the one who, for our sake, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then sat down at God's right hand in glory. It is Jesus who endured such opposition from sinful men. It's not that the shame didn't exist 
or didn't matter or didn't hurt. No, it's that the shame didn't keep Jesus from running the race that God his Father had set for him. It didn't keep Jesus from finishing. Compared to the throng of witnesses in chapter 11, Jesus is by far the example par excellence, isn't he? For not only did he endure by faith, he did what the heroes of faith in chapter 11 did not get to do. You see, Jesus also inherited what his father had promised him. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The enduring quality and nature of our saviour, Jesus Christ, should spur us on, no doubt about that. It should spur us on as we run with endurance the race that God has set before us. But be aware, there are no shortcuts. Yeah? No shortcuts. If you watch The Amazing Race on television, you know, there they have things called fast forwards. Yeah, where you can, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, well, you don't have to do some of the things that other teams have to do. Hey, in the Christian life, there are no fast forwards, no shortcuts. We will have to endure every challenge and obstacle that confronts us along the way. The race will be hard. But there is a finish line. There is a finish line. And the one to whom we look wait for, waits for us there. And as we look at him, the author and the perfecter of our faith, you sense that when we get there, all will be well and that you will